Hey everyone, welcome back to another installment of Puchica Voz. It's your host Sam, and I'm here for another installment of our interview series with Central American folks outside of general areas that we associate with Central Americans. Today I have the honor of being here with a special guest. Guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey y'all, my name is Casey Paris Daly. Um, on Twitter, my at is at mydailyvibes. That's M-Y-D-A-L-E-V-I-B-E-S. I also have that same handle for Twitter, uh, Twitter and Instagram, my bad. And um, on Twitter, I usually talk about things regarding uh, being Panamanian and Jamaican, Caribbean culture, um, being Afro-Latino. Um, I talk about Black queer culture and the Black queer community as well, as well as other social justice topics. Yeah, Casey's really awesome, man. We've been having an eye on you know doing this interview it's actually we did an uh interview beforehand and technical problems so it couldn't be published and now we're actually having the opportunity to sit down and talk and we love casey and all the work that he does and puts out there on twitter so thank you so much for being here thank you for having me okay awesome so we're gonna go ahead and start the episode off doing shits and giggles so um a shit is something bad that's going on either in your day or in your week and a giggle is something good that's going on in your life right now. So would you like to share? All right. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, a giggle is I went to Miami this past weekend, and that's my favorite city. And I had an amazing time, as always. So I guess my shit would be that I'm no longer in Miami. And I've been really thinking hard lately on where I want to be, which location in life, like which city will make me happy. But I also want to make sure I'm not running to another city just to run away from problems. So I've been tossing that idea for a while. So that's the shit because it ruins my mood. No, yeah, that's that sounds intense. It's just like a lot of evaluating going on and just where you see yourself. And uh, But I'm happy you had a good time. I know you love Florida and Miami. Yeah, definitely. Nice. Uh, it's an amazing city for Caribbean culture and Latinx culture. Yeah, isn't it like Pride Weekend this weekend also? Yeah, it's Pride Weekend, but it's not the Pride I go to. Oh, okay, okay. I went to a version of Black Pride in Miami last year, and that actually happens in May. It's like a party weekend for Black queer people, so those are the type of prides I attend. Nice, that's good. So for me, my my shit would be that it's Sunday, the weekend's ending. And so it's just like getting back into the work mindset. But my giggle is that, well, two things, actually. One of my sisters is traveling abroad in El Salvador right now. She's there for pleasure. And so we're taking care of her dog. And I've never really grown up with a dog. So it's like, it's nice to actually have that experience and be playing with a dog. And just, I don't know, I think they're so pure and like happy. So it's, it's, yeah. it's been like a I've good I've had like 12 and 13 dogs growing up. Really? Yeah, so I love dogs. I want to get my own dog, but I want to wait time to where I want to live first. Yeah, I have like 12, I've had like twelve or thirteen dogs growing up. Not nice. all at once. <laughs> no, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most we had at once was five. So wow, yeah, that's still a good amount though. It's just yeah, there's a lot of love to give and to receive with five. Yeah, dogs. definitely. <laughs> okay, um, what song have you brought for us this week, actually? So the song I have picked out today is Shabo Marapat by Next to Dubs. That's been my anthem since the first time I heard it in two thousand. And in college, I don't know which year it was, but that's been my <laughs> anthem. I play it at least once a week to get me prepared, to get me hype. Nice. Nice. That's good. Where did you first hear this song? I actually heard it at a Caribbean party 
I because at Florida at Florida State we have a Caribbean community just at Florida State, but we tend to when we go out party when we when we go out and party when we have conferences usually link up with like all the schools in Florida. So I heard at a Caribbean party I think it was a combined party with FAMU, which is at HBCU right in Tallahassee as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually the biggest HBCU with the most well, the most undergrad students. And so we linked up with their uh, Caribbean Students Association. I heard the song and I fell in love ever since then. I'm really excited to check this song out. If it's your anthem and you've heard it for years now, I can only expect that it's going to be really good. All right, so let's go ahead and listen to this song now. We bad everything we bad. Mad Adam, everything we mad. Black Korean fall when you see we not. Steal pan a beat like Trinidad. When we step in the street like criminal. GDP weekly, the minimal. Funeral. Nobody of you don't give a damn when they grab a schema like Shabba Madapa. Shot fire every man a drop flat. Everybody strap every banana. Sitting like the rims and the Cadillac. When the M1 and a nap. Cut your load from in a Netherlands. Wow, I could definitely see why that's your anthem, honestly. It's just a really yeah, good song. Yeah, pretty lit. It gives you hype. It definitely gets you, gets you in the mood. Yeah. It sets the mood the right way. <laughs> no, yeah, and I feel like it's the song that, like, if it comes up and everyone's already dancing, you know, everyone's already having a good time, it's just a song that sets it over the top. You know, people are just really into it. Yeah, you can't really go wrong with that song. <laughs> nice. I'm definitely going to have to have this song, like, downloaded. I'm going to put it on my like, Spotify. <laughs> That's a good move. Right <laughs> All right. So um, where are you from, actually? Because I, I feel like we just did our intro, but I don't think folks so... really know where you're from. So it's complex. So I'm actually originally born and raised in um, the greater Atlanta area. And anybody who's been to Atlanta knows that okay. we have what we, we have, what we have like in the perimeter, but we actually have the, the outskirts as well because Atlanta kind of has a little bit of an urban sprawl going on. So I grew up in the Atlanta area, um, but I actually mm-hmm. moved away and I lived and I went to school in Panama. Let me start. Let me say this. I was born and raised in Atlanta and my mom is from the capital of Panama. <laughs> My dad is from the capital yeah. of Jamaica. So Panama City, Panama, and my dad's from Kingston, Jamaica. And I moved away and lived in Panama mm-hmm. um, where I went to school and I lived. And then I moved to Florida for a little bit. Then I moved back. Then I moved to Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica. And I lived, worked, I worked there as well and I went to school. And then I came back and I moved, uh, moved back to Florida. So, and I also lived in the capital of Panama. So I'm from the states but i've also lived where my parents are from for a little bit okay okay wow that's actually like really intense because i'm thinking about like my experience and i only have like my la experience you know i only grew up here but like you've got three different places and then going to school in another state also is just there's so many different experiences that you've had can you speak a bit about each one of them so it's very it's very so it's very weird right because i actually moved back to atlanta and I always say this, especially mm. as people who are black and gay, it's very different mm-hmm. growing up in Atlanta and living here as an adult. So when you grow up here, you very mm. much grow up in the South. You grow up in the Bible Belt. You grow up where the church is. You grow up in a very homophobic environment. But then once you turn 21, mm. Atlanta does a switch on you, and you realize that you're actually in the black gay mecca. So I've really been learning about um, gay culture here, gay lingo, there's a lot of community here in Atlanta. 
and then um, moving to Panama and Jamaica, um, speaking about both of them at once, it's kind of interesting because you grow up with the culture, but, you know, subtle there's subtle differences in the way you interpret it and digest the culture and the way that you actually show you know the culture, right? So when I went to Panama and Jamaica, yeah. um, I never had problems. I was familiar with the food, the music, language, everything, but you would notice, like, certain people would be able to pick up that you're American based on the way you would word things or the slang you would use was outdated slang because you're picking up on slang from a family member who moved from Jamaica or Panama in the eighties or the nineties. So of course kids our age are not using those uh, terms. So you really have to, you really, you come off as sounding funny sometimes because you're using old, uh, old slang. You also see the pan- the country in a different light. Many times, if, especially if you have a family yeah. from my background who come from very low-income Panama or low-income Jamaica, you kind of hear um, stories that would make you think, oh, it's violent, you can't do this, you can't do that. But what it's kind of sad, but there's classes in every country, and no country is unlivable. And so when I was living there, I was very much surprised to find I was not yeah. only, um, I didn't live in the same areas as my parents. I lived in a more middle-class, upper-class area in Jamaica and Panama. And I always used to joke saying that it was actually the safest place that I've ever lived, including in the United States, because we get this, we get these secondhand stories from our parents who are our relatives who experienced violence or had to leave the country in a time of violence in their neighborhood. And so that's what we think the whole country is when it's not. And you also, um, you also get to make your own connections in the country. Mm-hmm. I think this is the most, the thing I took the most from being in Jamaica and Panama is because now I have my own connections because I'm not that close to my extended family. And so I don't visit Jamaica or Panama to see family. I visit to see my friends, my former teachers, former employers, peers. I have my own connection to the island. I have my own friends. I have my own network to the island, which makes it very special. It makes the island it makes it seem like it makes it more of my the island and the country. It makes Panama and Jamaica seem more home to me because it now I have my connection. Now I have my people down there that I wasn't that I'm not necessarily blood related to. These are people that chose to be in my life and I chose to be in theirs. Yeah. Wow. So that's really interesting. Um, I have a couple of questions now. So you said that you lived in the the capitals of each of them, right? You lived in the capital yes. and the capital Jamaica. Um, did you ever go visit to the areas where your family's from? I'm not too sure exactly how far your families lived from the capital per se. Yeah. So I actually did. Um, I visited my family a couple of times. So um, mm-hmm. the capital, I'm going to start in Panama. The capital in Panama I guess you can kind of think of it as Atlanta. Like you do have the downtown area with all the clubs, the business district. And, but that's not all the capital is. There definitely has, you know, the outskirts and stuff. And so I live more in Albrook, which, cause I went, when I went to school, I went to what they call an American school. So you basically get American mm-hmm. curriculum and stuff. Everybody, everybody in the school is from either Panama or another Latin American country. But the actual curriculum yeah. we get in is what you get in American school. And they have a lot of those in Panama. And so that was over near the canal zone. And then that was uh, uh, that was uh, Albert Clayton. I lived in that area. My Where my mom's originally from was Rio Bajo. And so I that's like on the mm-hmm. other side of the city. So it was about a 40-minute drive. Because the, play, the area I lived, it was more upper class. And that area is lower class. And there is a distinction between just people interacting with that side of the city and people going over to that side of the city. 
And so in Jamaica, I live, I lived in two places, actually. I lived in Smokyville, and then I lived on East King's House Road, which is actually behind the Bar Marley Museum. And so where my dad is from, he's mm. from a place called Walter House. And that that's not as far of a distance mm-hmm. as my mom's hometown was from where I lived in Panama. I would say maybe 30 minutes, but it's not that far of a distance. Same, I didn't, I didn't visit there all the time because yeah. a lot of the people I did meet where I was living, there wasn't much interaction over with that side, so... Mm, I see. How, like, how old were you when you lived in Panama? I was 18. Okay. And then in Jamaica? 19 or 20. No, 20. Okay. 20. And then, 20. 20. Okay. And then when you were in, while you were in Jamaica, was that when you were, like, applying to school and then you moved to... Actually, I was doing, I was doing online school. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. And then how did your perception of either the States or your experience growing up in Atlanta change while you lived in Panama and Jamaica, respectively? Um, like, or did it not change at all? Well, my perspective of the countries cha- definitely changed. One thing mm-hmm. that actually threw me for a loop, a lot of times, especially we have this problem, first-generation Americans, we hear these horror mm-hmm. stories and we hear... You know, a lot of times our families come over in circumstances that are not ideal. So that's what, ideal. So that's what we paint the country to be. And so a lot of times you'll hear this from Caribbean people in general, but you'll hear this from first generation Jamaicans or uh, that. And you'll hear it from Panamanians as well, that you can't be gay in Jamaica. You can't be gay in Panama, which was not the truth. Um, I actually, when I was there, that was actually the first time I was out. I was never out in the United States until I moved back. I was actually out in Panama first and then out in Jamaica second. And not saying that's perfect because no country is perfect. Mm -hmm. There's still, there's still a lot of violence you can experience even in the United States, but there are people who do live in Jamaica and Panama is openly out and there's a community there and they both have prides. Actually, I attended the second annual pride, the second ever pride in Panama. And I I attended the second ever pride in Jamaica because Jamaica had their first pride a year after Panama. Wow. Wow. So that's, these are like history making moments, you know, that you were living in. Yeah. Nice. No, yeah. Um, did you feel like it was a easier process for you to live that life? Like, you know, your, your authentic life in another country where it was like, okay, cool. Like, this is like my opportunity to either remake myself or make myself in front of new people, make new connections based on who I actually am. Yes, definitely. Uh, when I... Because in the greater Atlanta area, it's funny because I really, now that I'm back here, I feel like I don't know anybody. But growing up, I was really heavy into sports. I traveled all throughout the Atlanta area. I stay on the south 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 side, but I used to, you know, I traveled to the east side. I traveled to the north side. I used to practice up near South Carolina. I was all around Atlanta. I was always competing. I was uh, I knew people from sports. I, I'm very familiar with all areas of Atlanta, except for the west side, because I never really had reason to go over on that side. And so um, I basically felt like if I stayed in Atlanta, um, even though I was coming into terms with my gayness, I felt like if I stayed in Atlanta, it would be harder to be who I needed to be because I had built this straight persona of myself that I couldn't that I couldn't necessarily feel I couldn't comfortably come out of in Atlanta. So when I moved to Panama, it was literally a fresh start. Yes, I had my family there, but I wasn't there for my family. I was there for myself. And so that's when I started. Yeah. That's when I could be myself. I could start as a gay Panamanian Jamaican in Panama. And then when I went to Jamaica, it was the same thing. This was my fresh start. This was my t- my turn to be who I wanted to be and live my truth without having 
my history of having to come out to friends that I've known for six or seven years. These are people who had just met me, so I was allowed to be myself. And so I brought that back to Florida as well. And now that I'm back in Atlanta, I actually don't know as many people as I thought because a lot of people did move away. And I'm just at a different space in my life. Mm. So I kind of use the lessons that I learned being myself and living in my truth and how I've grown to um, use that navigating the gay spaces in Atlanta. Nice. No, yeah, I definitely resonate with a lot of what you're saying. I had a similar experience when I went to undergrad. I was able to live that authentic life. You know, I didn't have to like necessarily be like, tell people or anything it was just be myself and like whoever it like has a negative opinion doesn't really need to fuck with me in that way you know like it was just like all right cool i am who i am and if you fuck with me cool if you don't cool you know like i'm not here to bargain for your friendship i'm just gonna be myself and so exactly yeah and so um i wanted to ask you know this is just like my own curiosity how how many or like what amount of friends did you have that were queer or were they were they not or like what was your friend group like in these spaces where you're able to live your truth as you said so originally this is in panama and jamaica in panama and jamaica and my first stand in florida before i moved to jamaica a lot of my friends were straight because yeah i didn't have nor did I seek out that many gay spaces I was still um I was still coming to terms with what being gay looked like for me and how I wanted I was I didn't immediately well being in Panama I didn't know where the gay community was first they do have a gay club well they did when I lived there but I didn't know about it I didn't there's not there wasn't a lot of out people in my school so a lot of my friends were straight, but my straight friends knew immediately. And that was my first stint in Florida and Jamaica. I really didn't start making queer friends until I turned 21. That's when I started traveling to Prides. And that's when I realized I'd reached a point where I was fully comfortable with my sexuality. Um, I began to interact with um, other men. And then that's when I really realized that I wanted to travel to Prides. I wanted to go to gay clubs. And in Panama, we went to a gay club. And it was so sweet because all my friends came out. But I had so many people who wanted to come out and support me at my first gay club that I accidentally turned the gay club into a straight club. And as sweet as it was, (laughs) I did not want my straight friends to come with me at a gay club. I wanted to go to a gay club so it was gay, not to be with a whole bunch of straight people. And so I had a couple experiences like that. And I realized my straight friends are awesome, amazing, but I need people in my community to in order to navigate these prides and gay clubs comfortably and, you know, just talk about who I'm involved with and just talk about more intimate things that, you know, I might not necessarily feel comfortable talking about with my straight guy friends. So it wasn't until I turned 21 where I, where I started seeking out my community more out of need and want to expand on my sexuality and learn and grow more. As of now, all pretty much all my best friends, with the exception of a couple, are queer. Okay. Nice. So, no, yeah, I definitely think that's a very healthy approach just because, as you said, it was you coming to terms with it. You know, it's it seems intense to imagine that, like, you move to another country and then it's just like, all right, cool. You know, this is who I am, like, from day one, you know, like, if that's not who you were in your home country or, like, where you were previously, then it's not necessarily going to happen the next day, you know. So it's definitely a process. And I think it's interesting to hear you talking about that. What did that look like for you when you moved to Florida? Well, originally, because there was two stints. I actually came from Panama to Florida, then Florida to Jamaica, then back to Florida. Oh. So, yeah, okay. there's, a, there's a little stint in between there. So, actually, the first yeah. time I went to Florida, this is a observation I made. 
So a lot of yeah. first generation um, Caribbean and Latinx people were so proud of our culture. You know, we're so proud of our language. We're just so proud of like what has been taught to us and what we can teach other people about our culture. But a lot of times we fail to realize that we also see the country from a lens and we don't necessarily see the truth all the time and we don't necessarily represent the country in a truthful manner. And so what I mean by that is when I first got back to Florida, even growing up, a lot of my friends were Caribbean. So it's just natural for me to have a lot of Caribbean, West Indian family uh, friends. I'm West Indian, Panamanian, and I'm Jamaican. So I'm West Indian on both sides. So it's just natural for me to naturally connect with Caribbean people as well as Afro-Latinx people because the West Indian, Panamanian also falls under the Latinx identity as well. And so, um, you know, it's just always to me, that's where those are the first people I gravitate to are Latinx, Afro-Latinx people and Caribbean people. And so when I got down there, I found myself in a lot of hyper-masculine, heteronormative, like aggressively heteronormative spaces. And it was because a lot of times we preserve what our aunts, uncles, and parents have told us. So if you grew up as a Jamaican and your parents and your uncles are telling you in Jamaica, we don't like gay people, we don't like gay people, you being proud of your culture and you never being to Jamaica, you think being Jamaica, being Jamaican is rooted in homophobia. So you think by you being homophobic, you're being more Jamaican. When it's actually very regressive because if you go to the country, I mean, this is, this of course, this doesn't go for everybody, but you'll meet people who are the same as they are here, just as open as they are anywhere you meet. And they're not as aggressively homophobic as you portray all Jamaicans to be. I mean, there is a, there is homophobia there, of course, but it's not innate with the identity of being Jamaican. Being Jamaican does not mean you have to be homophobic. There's it's two separate things. And a lot of times when you're when you meet first generation Americans, they don't know how to separate regressive um, concepts like that. They think they have to think this way. They have to th- they have to be they have to think homophobic. They have to think misogynistic to make them more of that culture and i noticed that when i got to florida and that was hard for me to come to terms with just coming from panama knowing that's not how it is if y'all would just travel and go if y'all were able to travel and just live there for a little bit you realize your identity doesn't have to be rooted in that and so i struggled in those spaces a little bit because i felt like i had to walk on eggshells and being in first generation caribbean and afro-latinx spaces were actually more homophobic than actually being in the actual country. Because when I went to Jamaica, I had an amazing experience. I was living there for a while, and then I came back to Florida. And But by the time I came back to Florida, I had already turned 21, and I was now seeking out Black queer friends. Mm-hmm. I had experienced uh, my first-generation culture, and I still okay. went into those spaces, but not as much. It was very important for me to seek out the Black queer friends because I was at that stage in my life where I wanted to learn more and expand more and get more invested in my community. No, yeah, I definitely understand that. I think it's really interesting that when you talk about, you know, first-gen folks, how, you know, we replicate a lot of the the fucked-up ideologies that, you know, our parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents had, and how they're, they don't often go challenged, you know? Like, did you ever see any moments where people were like, challenging these notions of like homophobia or like misogyny not really i mean of course i was because yeah. anybody will tell you who knew me in college i did not hold back um especially when <laughs> it came, i did not come back with um regressive ideologies i i i let people know what 
what was what. Um, so yeah, but no, people really didn't challenge it. But I will say this because I really was involved with my um in these spaces. People, I don't know. Most times it wasn't genuine, but people would change the mm-hmm. you know change their language and try to be less um you know less trash in order to accommodate certain identities. Yeah. Um, such as gay people or trans people in the spaces. They, they weren't perfect, but um, no one actively challenged it except except when I was around, I was challenging it. Or if another queer person who was yeah. in mainly queer spaces were around, they would challenge it. But no one ever really challenged it in the community, which I guess was the the toughest part of being in these spaces that people would un- people everybody would say to understand, but they never challenged it when you weren't around. So. Mm, I see. Do you feel like a lot of their activism was performative at the time? Like it was just because you were around and this is what I need to say because, you know, I respect Casey. But if Casey's not here, I wouldn't be saying these things. Yes, I would call it activism because they weren't activists. Okay. But um, <laughs> uh-huh. a lot of their allyship definitely was performative. Definitely okay. was performative because they, when Casey, and it was also because of what I offered, right? So. Oh, I'm Casey. I'm gonna mm. tell a funny story. I'm gonna make you laugh when we go out to party. I'm a, you know, I'm gonna be very, I'm gonna be turned. I'm gonna be lit. So, you know, I feel like people yeah. didn't even necessarily do it because it made me feel some, some type of way. Sometimes I felt people just wanted me to do it so I could still come around and be my fun, funny self, which in a sense is performative because mm. you should want to do it even if you couldn't stand me as a gay person or stand someone as a trans person. You should yeah. just not want to be transphobic, not want to be homophobic and inclusive to those people because that's independent of someone's personality or who they are. So that's independent of people's personality. That's just, that's just being a human and that's just being a human to other people. But people, yeah. people get too caught up in what their culture means to them and how they have to treat other identities to be more of their culture that they don't care. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I get what you mean. Like, a question I had is because I feel like this is like a, a moment for you, you know, this is like you coming back after living in two different countries. And um, now you're back in Atlanta also, which is where you grew up. How did like the, the the upbringing that you had in Atlanta, how does it reflect who you are now? I know you mentioned that like folks have moved away, but were you raised in that? Because I, I know you mentioned that you're, you know, you grew up in the South, you're in the Bible Belt, you go to church, all these things. Were, were you raised in that lifestyle also? Or like, what was your, your relationship to the, the strong like christian values that we often associate with the south so um i was i thought i wasn't raised in the church uh, but mm-hmm. so let me break it down growing up <laughs> i was a gymnast i was yeah. a gymnast for seven years um i played tennis actually for 14 years i played tennis since i was four years old i played tennis for 14 years and i did all-star cheer for two years and i did track and I was also involved in other things. And so what I saw in the South was I was very much, even though I wasn't raised in the church, I was raised around Black church. People who were part of the Black church, part of, um, I was also through tennis, I was around um, white Christians. So I was around, I experienced a lot of racism through tennis and a lot of homophobia through tennis the same way I experienced a lot of homophobia through the Black church indirectly because I wasn't part of it. But my parents and my siblings will tell you, Mm -hmm. I kind of grew up, you know, I was always the extrovert. I was never at home. I was always at a friend's house. I was always doing a family vacation with a friend. So I, a lot of my experiences are actually come from, you know, growing up and like growing up outside of my house, not necessarily inside of my house because I didn't, I wasn't raised in the church and my parents aren't homophobic. Mm -hmm. I do. I, my uncle is, but my parents aren't. So 
a lot of my experience actually come from outside of the house. And so I have, I, there was a time where I did try to get involved with the church, realized it wasn't for me. Um, high school is very rough, very, very rough through, um, through sports and just having that, that there was just that Christianity, that homophobic Christianity that just kind of lingered in the area of Atlanta that I was. And maybe it was all areas, but I just kind of have, I'm kind of just looking into the area I was living in. It just seemed to, it seemed very omnipresent there, so. Mm, Okay. No, yeah, I, I definitely see what you mean. And I think it's, like, interesting that you're able to look back on it and recognize that, you know, there were these, like, structures around you imposing certain like gender roles and like things that you're supposed to be doing and how you felt in some cases ostracized or like pushed back on just because you were being you. And so I think it's interesting that you've gone back now and that you're able to like live a different lifestyle just because as you said, you know, turning 21 definitely changes things up for you. So what does your life look like now in Atlanta? Well, right now I'm still trying to get in with the Atlanta black gay culture that Atlanta is so popular. I go out a lot here. Um, I have my first corporate job ever since graduating. So that nine to five life, which is very, 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 very boring because the college <laughs> I was involved in a lot. Yes. So that's, that's really what I've been involved with since I've been here. No. Yeah. I get you. Like going into that nine to five lifestyle after you've been in undergrad where you had, you know, all the time to do whatever you wanted essentially, as long as you were investing in something or doing nothing for some folks. Now that you actually have the nine to five structure, it's very different. I feel like it, in my experience, at least it dries out my life. I feel like I live a really dry lifestyle now. Yeah. <laughs> but same. yeah, but, <laughs> but no, but like, I think it's awesome that you're able to like, try to make those connections with the the culture that's around you and how like prominent and relevant to a lot of folks the the black gay culture is in atlanta what do you compare it to you know like how can you compare it to your experiences in jamaica versus your experiences in florida you know did you have a lot of like i don't know time to explore the queer community in florida or was that not really there is one but it's not as it's not as big and as noticeable as it is in atlanta and so i I think right now what I'm struggling with is in Atlanta, Jamaica, and Panama. In Florida, Jamaica, and Panama, I just knew a lot of people. I knew a bunch of people. Um, And I'm finding it hard. But I was also in spaces like school where I could, and, you know, organizations and clubs that I was able to just meet and have access to a lot of people at once. Um, Whereas you notice as a nine-to-five professional, you don't really meet people that easy. So... And me being a huge extrovert, it's kind of hard yeah. for me, um, you know, to not be super social um, all the time and not have access to as many mm-hmm. friends or as many group of people, or as many as many group of people who are actually looking for friends. Because I will go to clubs that get packed, but not everybody's necessarily looking to make make new friends. So I think that's been kind of the the most, I guess, irritating no, yeah. uh, po- uh, part of being here is not having a lot of people around me because that's what I'm used to. No, yeah, I can definitely see that being like a, a thing that that frustrates you just because it's like you're so used to being out and like making all these like memories and going to things with people around you and just like, I don't know, further like strengthening those relationships with them. And then to go back to like a place where folks have moved away or like you don't necessarily feel you can like build that. I'm sure you're doing it, but it's just it's it's different. It's a it's a process to adjust to that. What what was your undergrad like? I know you mentioned that you were involved in certain spaces. What what spaces were you involved in? 
So undergrad is where, uh, well, I went to Florida State University. So undergrad, I was involved in Panamanian Student Association, Caribbean Student Association. Um, those were my main involvements. Um, but towards the end, especially after I turned 21, mm-hmm. I got involved more with, I wasn't officially involved with a lot of things, but I was, I guess, unofficially because I was always around. So I'd, you know, I'd be very involved with uh, our Pride uh, Student Union or we have QDPOC with Queer Trans People of Color, and I'd be involved with that. Um, that as well. In addition to that, I did Peace Jam. Um, I was a, a Peace Jam mentor, so that was that was um, that was a fun experience as well. So that was what it looked like more towards the end of my college. The end of my college was more activist oriented, where the beginning was more culture oriented. Mm, I see. No, yeah. I, looking at your Twitter now, you know, we we can all see that it's very activist oriented and just like, especially related to like the Afro Latinx and Caribbean communities. So, what really drew you to the activist world or like that role? Well, so I was talking to one of my best friends. Um, her name's Kaylin, and we were discussing mm-hmm. we were discussing um, how some people, you know, don't like to really talk about their sexuality, don't like to label themselves, and I was. Um, we were talking, we were talking, we were talking, and I was like, yeah. but I just don't get it. Why won't they just say I'm gay? Why don't why won't they do this? Why won't they do this? Why won't they do that? Why won't and then she broke it down to me. She said some people just don't see their identities as political. And in that moment it clicked. Ever since I've been younger, I've seen identities as political. People are killed, people are marginalized, there's systemic oppression based mm-hmm. on your identities. And even though I wasn't articulate in it necessarily growing up or I didn't actively think about it. Being gay, being black has always been political. There's always been, there's always, it's always been something that has been a social, social justice issue for me, even before I was in activist spaces. So that's what kind of drew me into the spaces, meeting other people who had vocabulary and have been around in these spaces long enough to conceptualize stuff that I already thought and verbalize things that I was already thinking did you feel how accessible did you feel that was because i know that for a lot of activist spaces it can definitely turn into like a snobby circle jerk of sorts where everyone's just like in their own elitist circle so like going into a space like that how accessible do you feel it was or originally it wasn't very accessible growing up my parents my parents will tell you or yeah my parents will definitely tell you i wasn't the I'm not the best with English. Um, I'm not the best with grammar. I'm not the best with words. I've definitely gotten better due to being in the college spaces, definitely being in active spaces, but I just wasn't the best. I spell terribly. My grammar is yeah. sometimes horrible, like frightening horrible. You would never know that I did well in college sometimes. Uh, so originally I just couldn't keep up. I just couldn't understand. I, it, was, I don't know, it was out of my grasp. But I eventually picked up, but a lot of times it wasn't accessible. It just it's something I had to really spend a lot of time outside of these spaces to really just start understanding Mm, i see yeah um one of the things sandra and i talk about is how activism we feel has to be accessible to folks of all backgrounds and you know all age groups as well so one of the things that we talk about is how activism has to be like if your mom can't understand your activism then who is it for you know like it's if the person who taught you a lot of the ways that you see the world can't understand what you're talking about you know then why are you talking about it in such a way that it's not understandable so i think it's something that often goes unchecked i don't know if you agree with that (laughs) 
No, I definitely, I definitely, I definitely agree. And how do you feel like you navigate that role now, where you're actually one of them, like storytellers? You know, you're you share a lot of like history related to Panama and Jamaica. So how do you feel like you're able to navigate that now, that where you can speak about it? For me, it's realizing there's a point in time where people could say big words, and I I look at them they have a good point. But for me, it's I've gotten to the point where. I, I can just see what people are saying, even if they try to just set up in pretty words. Sometimes people are not even saying anything. And so a lot of times, even when I tweet, I know sometimes I, I don't always follow this, but I tend to tweet just how I talk, yeah. which is not with a lot of big vocabulary words. I tweet with a lot of grammar issues. <laughs> I'm pretty sure a lot of people have said I tweet with a lot of spelling issues. Um, and actually, fun fact, I recently made my Twitter because I wanted to talk about activism and I wanted to practice my spelling and my grammar when I was doing it. And... You, you, they don't understand me or they don't um, mm-hmm. when it comes to the grammar and most times people do understand you so I just when it comes to me you know doing my threads or talking about issues I just tried to keep it at a level that's <laughs> understood in layman terms for lack of a better word because that's just how I speak and um, why would I try to dress up the way I speak to reach elitist spaces when I was never telling it for them anyway that's true. That's very true, actually. It's like your intended audience wasn't the snobs. <laughs> it was like, I want to share this with people who are gonna, really going to resonate with it. And one of the things I really appreciate about your threads is they're so source heavy. You know, a lot of people make threads and then at the end, you know, you see all the tweets that are like source, source, or like cite your source, please, or like all these things. But with you, it's like sources are included in all of your threads. Like I think of the history of reggaeton and how big that thread was and just you were you were on it you were like here's the source here's this here's articles here's journals all these things related to it that i thought was fascinating it's what we need on twitter honestly you know we want to retweet it because you know it aligns kind of with our bias it aligns with the way we want to think it aligns with what we want to say and so you know we kind of tweet without mm-hmm. fact checking all the time so um, i'm a big fact checker um yeah. sometimes i will fact check something that i know like the back of my hand just to make sure i'm there's not something i missed and so um i always encourage and that's i also say in a lot of my threads and i say with a lot of my stuff i tell people to fact check me fact check me and if i'm wrong let me know i'm wrong because i have been wrong before and i have had to come back and correct it but fact check me don't take anything you see on twitter at the end of the day we're just mm. random users putting together words so don't take everything to be true that check what you see is going to be right there on yeah. Google. If you see there was a law in Panama that that banned um, English-speaking West Indian immigrants from immigrating to Panama, mm. that's true. But look it up; it'll be right yeah. there on Google. So I always I've been a big fact checker ever since I was younger. My parents always bring it up, even when I was in sports. I used to fact check little statistics about tennis players just to have them on hand when I ever had to argue <laughs> who's the better tennis players and those sorts. Wow. No, I think that's really interesting because it it demonstrates you know your your genuine passion for it just because it's like I want to talk about it and I want to be right when I'm talking about it. I don't want to be like you know talking out of my ass about it it's just i don't know i think it's really interesting i i have a, a bit of a, a spicy question for you all right <laughs> just because i because <laughs> I, I remembered the the thread on reggaeton remescla and their messiness what what are your thoughts related to that because i know you you've talked about it a bit and i i don't know i just want to give this opportunity for you to like actually talk about it also because Remescla is doing it repeatedly to different right. folks. So here's my opinion about Remescla and other Latinx, big Latinx um, social media um, accounts with you, such as Remescla. They do, what you realize is, and I've told my friend this, there's a heavy, you realize there's a niche, there is an audience, and there is money mm-hmm. 
and there is recognition available for super marginalized identities. You know, people want to uphold white supremacy, but talking about white history or talking about white Latinx people, that's no longer profitable. No one cares anymore. Interesting, it's not new. But what is new is those identities that you have oppressed for so long. So what, what entities like that do is they take our stories and they benefit off of it because they know they'll get a large audience from not only their people, but from our people as well, because they're finally telling our story. And they're not necessarily telling it inaccurately. But the problem is when you tell a story or a history lesson, it's hard to retell it. So, because it's already out there. So now we have these non-Black uh, North American Latinx people who are getting recognition and profiting and making money off of these stories that people have been violently oppressed from when you could easily give it to someone from that community. And I'm so sorry, but social media is not big. Everybody knows everybody. So there, if you are a Latinx social media account, you know about the Afro-Latinx community on Twitter. We probably we probably don't have a bunch of followers, but you know, we get retweeted onto your timeline. We talk about a lot of those things that people didn't know about before. And so you know we're there. You know if you ever want to talk about Afro-Latinx, you know about a good three, four people. And not even necessarily me, but a lot of other people, a lot of other people I interact with daily who can touch on these topics, who can write about these, who can get recognition, who want to be in these fields, who want to be a writer, who want to be a creative, who want to yeah. tell these stories. And what you're choosing to do is taking the stories and information from them and giving it to someone who already had mm. that privilege and access before. No, yeah, I think that was wonderfully put just because I think it's true. Like everything that you said are just straight up facts because these are people speaking on their their experience Googling the subject, you know, not like their experience growing up around it or their experience living it at all. And so when non-Black Latinx folks start writing about Afro-Latinx experiences, it gets hella messy. And so I think it's like, I don't know, like I, I know that Remesclasi people calling them out you know whenever they do it because they've been doing it repeatedly but i don't know what their approach is if it's just like well we're still making money we're still getting clicks so it doesn't matter or if their approach is just slowly gearing into a change i don't know how you feel about that like what do you what do you there think? i want to touch back on the uh, topic of opportunist under the guise of being an ally so mm. what they do so Originally, I don't think you can meet one person who's been in spaces who at one point did not love Ramechka. Like, I loved them at first, and I know a lot of people who just loved them. A lot of us loved them because you know what they did? They were telling these stories that we never got to see. We saw ourselves for the first time. So they were us. We thought that they were for us, but what they were doing is what we didn't realize behind the scenes is they weren't hiring our Latinx people. They didn't really care about the issues they were talking about. They cared about being that inclusive new Latinx media account. So, you know, we all got thrown for a loop until it came to the point where after a while, it's wow, you're telling stories that we're telling on Twitter, but you're not actually having it told by people like us. You don't. I'm reading about the history of a country that I have heritage in, knowing that there's a huge Twitter community, and I'm reading from a non-Black Mexican writer, when a lot of those histories, a lot of the stories are originally told and not written down. And so mm. now we're seeing it from a non-Black Mexican who's going into the community and interviewing people. When we didn't have to interview people to know this stuff, our uncles, our tios and tias and primos and primas, they told us. They told us about it. They didn't want the history to die down. So we didn't have to sit down and do an interview. But for formal purposes, we could have easily done that and had a more authentic story to tell and a more intimate story to tell. Yeah, I think it like creates a different 
experience in general is just like these are people who've actually lived these experiences who actually have you know a foundation in them and who can speak about them at length that someone else cannot and so i think the the whole approach to it just seems to be like okay we're gonna put this story out there because we know people are gonna like listen to it but is it because we actually can speak about it at length or we know about all the complexities surrounding it no like i don't see that coming from remescla or like larger latinx orgs because i feel like a lot of them just repost stuff and either don't attribute any credit or just run with ideas that they happen to see in a really like great thread and so like how do you feel that their approach is going to change in the future if it is at all or do you think like it's time for communities that are not given this platform are not given the opportunity to speak to organize well i'm not sure if they're going to change i doubt Mm -hmm. it um when I we posted yeah. our concerns, um, someone from Remescla posted um, a ver- an email to try to stump us. When um, yes, my thread was in December, but the minute I came onto Twitter was in January, and I've been tweeting about a lot of things that people didn't know. I just decided to put it in a thread because I, I said I always put bits and pieces, but I never tell the whole story. So let me a thread, and I you can go back and you can see I've been dropping bits and pieces since January. So it was kind of more silence impacted and then they put the whole oh we gotta do better we're going to try to do better if you want if you wanted it's 2018 and if you're the inclusive latinx on social media site um social media outlet mm-hmm. that would have even been something you should be trying to do that would be something you're already doing so whether they change or not um it's not necessarily my concern because what i really want people from my community to focus doing and any of my duties to do is support um you know, support their community. Um, mm. If they're doing good work, if they're doing inclusive work, there are a lot of Afro-Latino people who have their own YouTube channels and blog posts. Support them instead. Retweet them instead, instead of retweeting these Latinx social media sites because they're not for us. They're, they want to benefit off of us. Their fake or pseudo-allyship is rooted in opportunity. It's rooted in money. is rooted in recognition. And so if you see, for example, this podcast, y'all do amazing work and other Central Americans su- support this podcast instead of hearing um, if Rebecca decided they wanted to do a podcast and talk about Central American topics, why would you support that instead of the small um, the small Central Americans out there who actually already have already have blog sites, already have podcasts out there who are doing good work but don't necessarily have the same following as these large Latinx um, outlets. So my focus, I, I don't necessarily know or care if they're going to change because that should have been our focus shouldn't be to support anywhere. Our focus should be mm-hmm. supporting those who look like us, who sound like us, who come from where we come from, who do the same work just on a smaller scale because they don't necessarily have that same platform yet. But we can get it to them if we support them. I had similar thoughts when because okay, so in Central American Twitter there's there's always fights with like Mexican nationalism. Like every other week there's something going on. There's either like an orchata debate or something else going on, but there's always some argument. And so I made these couple of tweets where I was just like, yo, we keep fighting these voices that just aren't listening to us. And so I think it's time for us as a community to just uplift the people who are showcasing our work and who are contributing new work. Because I feel like a lot of the time we just regurgitate stories in the same way that like you know how earlier we talked about how people tend to replicate the same like fucked up ideologies um we just often repeat the same stories that we've been told which there's no problem whatsoever with doing that but 
sometimes we can contribute more also just by like supporting other people to supporting these new voices, supporting these unique perspectives. And so like when I think of Central American Twitter, I also think of like Garifuna Twitter and how they got like this whole platform now or like this opportunity to speak about their culture and heritage that I feel like I want to uplift. I'm not part of them, but I'm just like, yo, y'all need to speak on this. And I'm happy that it's being spoken about because I've never actually heard anything about it. You know, I grew up in El Salvador, which did not. Well, my parents are from El Salvador, which denies, you know, any Afro-Latinidad or any like indigenous communities as well. So it's just like interesting to hear all of these new perspectives that I didn't hear about growing up Central America. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Same thing here. I learned a lot through Twitter. Twitter, Twitter is a special place where you can build a community and have your voice heard um, based on story, but in a way that you really can't in, on really any other platform. So that's what I really come to enjoy about Twitter, learning about even a Garifuna culture, because um, there was a, there's another guy who went to my uh, college and he was, he was black um, and he was Honduran. And so I went up to him, we started speaking Spanish and I said, oh, okay, so, you know, you're Hispanic, too. You look like Hispanic as well. And he said, um, I'm going to be first. And, like, that's the first time I heard about it. And so I came to Twitter. I really learned more and more and more about it. Because I've seen this come up on Twitter various times with different users where they say like I'm Garifuna first or I am X identity first and then I'm Latinx and so I think it's really interesting to hear that there's that pride about their heritage you know they, they clearly have a deep love for it and the fact that we haven't heard about this suggests that straight up we're not listening Right. Like, you know, me, like I, I wasn't listening to this, like it was out there. But the fact that like now I'm listening and now I'm like seeing other people share these ideas. I'm just like, yo, this is always here. And I think it's amazing. But I just hadn't heard about it. And I think that's what we need more of. We need more people just like sharing new stories, sharing new, like put new voices on the mic, you know, essentially. And give everyone their own mic. Don't like, we don't have to share one. We don't have to invest in Remescla or like We Are Me Too or like Undocumedia, you know, these large Latinx orgs, you know, like, <laughs> you know, I'm like hella throwing shots right now, you know, jumping. <laughs> <on something. laughs> you know like we're a small town they're not gonna check this out but um no but like (laughs) no yeah but it's just like give these folks their own mics let them share their own stories because they're valuable insights that will help us better understand our siblings and also like the larger latinx sibling in general if people are actually talking about their experiences and we're just not hearing this shared through another perspective yeah right I actually, I agree because I tweeted something a while ago and I said, I don't know if I said no offense or all offense, <laughs> but either way, I meant all offense, um, but I'm not reading your article and it talks about LGBT people, LGBTQ plus people in the Korean or Latin America without your one, the article actually being written by someone who is a current local uh, of the country or someone who's a native and was raised there and they're just like, you know, has recently left. And or mm-hmm. it's not an interview that's encompassed of 90-95% of the records. And that's just what that's, I meant when I said it. I said what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that the last point is definitely true. Like, if this isn't, like, something that the community itself will want to, like, actually hear about, like, why are you writing right. about it? I don't know. I think of, like... BBC travel articles. I read one of like this woman who, or I don't even know their gender actually. Um, this person who went to Korea and they were speaking at length about Korean culture, but they were like 
very much like I am a foreigner in another country. Listen to me speak on this country and their culture because right. I have such a unique perspective because I'm right. the outsider right. here. And I was just like, yo, this is hella messy. Like, <laughs> yeah, just because I'm like, yo, this is like, especially because they were talking linguistics. And I understand if you're studying a language, but like if you didn't grow up with the language and then study it deeply, right. it's different than like, right. oh yeah, like I do this as a hobby and I think it's really cool. Listen to me speak at length about it. Like, I don't know. But yeah, no, that's, that's one of the big things that a lot of people are like hella fighting about and while I admire their fight with Remescla and these other right. huge pages, right, I, I also agree. wish they put that effort, and I know a lot of them do, put that effort in, like, further amplifying voices. Okay. Um, do you have any questions for the pod? I think I've, like, just about gone through all my questions. Oh, I do. Um, actually, what made y'all start this uh, podcast? Uh, okay, so Sandra and I both grew up where we knew that we were Central American, but we grew up in L.A. where there's a larger, like, Mexican presence, and going to college in places that weren't necessarily like Central American oriented. I went to school in San Diego, which is, you know, the border city with Mexico. So it's just Mexican culture and like Mexican American culture is just thriving right. there. And Sandra went to another school where um, it was a lot of like glorification of like Spanish conquest right. history. And so, yeah, we just didn't ever feel like our Central American identity was really being validated. And then when we actually like reconnected, we were able to talk about it for a while. And we felt that we saw in each other an opportunity to like dive deep into our identities. And we wanted to like really showcase this for other people also. And with the emergence of Central American Twitter, it just got that much easier. And so we really just want to do it because we're like, yo, these stories need to be told. You know, a lot of folks have very similar experiences, but their stories aren't being told or their perspectives aren't being told. And there are very critical things going on right now regarding our communities that need to be talked about. Like, you know, the Honduras election and how like volatile it was, you know, TPS ending and how intense that is and how dis how much displacement. We really wanted to use this as an opportunity to like like actually talk about issues at length and invite folks who can speak about things that we can't speak on. That's awesome. That's awesome. I hope one day create something where I can do something similar where I'm able to express and talk about experiences that other people within my identities and within general identities can understand and also be a voice for those um, as well within the community. Um, and also amplify voices that I can't also amplify. So that's very cool. No, yeah. And I think you're already doing that. You're already like putting people on the map on your Twitter. And if you want to go even further, you got our full-fledged support. We got you, Casey. We, we got <laughs> that you. shot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh my god wait i have one question so i've been like listening to the bodega boys a lot recently and um Jesus and miro on their viceland show they do a uh, what would your rainbow say and so i want to ask you that what would your rainbow say like what is one like memorable quote or something that you really identify with okay so i guess one quote this would be very generic basic mainstream quote but um you know you have to live with that i love that quote i don't and not necessarily love the quote as the quote is like it is me. I've been living life since mm -hmm. since I graduated high school, and I I'm a believer in just just live your life. I don't know. This is like I've been like very. I actually reconnected recently with someone from my high school who's also part of the community, and I was just you know venting about my experience in high school. Um, I and so um 
But I was watching Love Simon, so like I I, I reconnected with this person. I watched Love Simon, getting to know each other and um, such. Because we grew up, uh, we went to the same high school, but we we didn't know each other. So um, we just kind of talk about our very experiences. And so one quote um, in the movie Love Simon, I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything, but one quote was is when he was talking to his mom about being gay. She said, "I feel like you've been holding your breath. That that that. Now you can excel, exhale." And so I don't know. That just like spoke to me and that just speaks to me like because i just really believe in living your life so i don't know it's just that speaks to me just live your life live your truth like because we just spend so much of our life especially depending on our identities and especially depending on how you know how much we have to lose that we're just always holding our breath and it just does feel good sometimes to just exhale and live you know live our truth Mm -hmm. so i guess that's what my rainbow says i don't know if i answered it right (laughs) <laughs> no those are both very powerful like the the exhale one makes me think of like releasing any tension that you're really holding because it's just something that we unnaturally do that like we're not conscious of doing it we're just like tense a lot of the time and then just like being able to let go of that and feel free is a good feeling so i, I really like that quote <laughs> Okay, and um, we're going to go ahead and do the despedida now. So this is just like a, a self-care tip of sorts. Do you have any self-care tips that you'd want to share with folks? So a self-care tip that I have would um, take some time to get off of social media. Um, or not, not necessarily social media. Um, take some, make a goal and mm-hmm. do that one thing. It has to be a little goal, whether it's eat three times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I not social media, but I took... Um, a break off of apps for a little bit, um, apps we have in the queer community, because um, usually through social media and other things, we feel the need to be present 24-7, mm-hmm. which we're the first generation who has that unrealistic pressure of feeling the need to be present. So um, I would say take some time uh, to, you know, dissociate from one thing, whether yeah. it's one social media app and like set a goal and just relax and, you know, um, refocus because that is an unrealistic pressure and it can be very taxing. No, yeah, that's that's definitely true. It's just, we're, like you said, we're the generation that has to live with this. And it's something that we maybe aren't used to a lot of the time as humans. So taking the time to reflect and actually be present without being online present, it, it's a good thing. So thank you for that. Um, my self-care tip is just grind (laughs) just like do it like you know we talked about how the nine to five makes our lives feel dry but then the weekend comes around at least for me i feel like yay it's the weekend you know i'm myself i get all this time to myself and so i like it because it just makes me really appreciate the fact that like i put in all that work and now i get to like fuck around and do whatever i want you know like i get to actually enjoy myself so i really want people to like appreciate the grind i know that a lot of the times it can feel like exhausting alienating and just like not what you want to do but recognize that it's work that you're putting in and all that work will pay off so i really want folks to walk away with that even if you're grinding it's gonna pay off you're gonna get your weekend i'm about to enjoy my weekend my last day i'm about to go out myself so definitely agree (laughs) no yeah (laughs) yeah definitely so thank you so much casey i really enjoyed our conversation no thanks for having me yeah of course you're a friend of the pod and we're really happy to have you